Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar Science. The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar Sinai. Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So much fun. Connecting the dots. Between medicine, surgery, art, music, and sports. Our beloved Lakers and Rams. I hope you're listening, Kyrie. I'm ready. We're ready. Pull the trigger. In order to pull a trigger, though, you need that index finger. That tip of your index finger is where all that power is. Who knew? All your fingers matter. All your toes matter. Your whole body matters. But who knew how powerful to feel the world and see the world with your finger? How could you see the world with your finger? You can do it if you're blind and you got to read. You use your index finger, just like Ariel, my guest at 815, a urologist can feel if you've got prostate cancer by feeling what should be soft is hard. And we'll get into it at 8.15, but it made me think all week. That power of information that comes from that pad. Look at your index finger right now. Not the nail bed, but look at the other side where that pad is. When you're blind, you got to read Braille. You can get all that information about the world around you through just the tip of that index finger. The power that's there. The subtleties. This is Stevie Wonder six years ago giving the Song of the Year Grammy to Ed Sheeran. And they're thinking he's got to open an envelope to read it. He's Stevie Wonder. He can't read it. He starts cracking up because he can read Braille and you can't. You can't read it, you can't read Braille. Ah, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I just want to say before saying the winner that we need to make every single thing accessible to every single person with a disability. Braille. What exactly is Braille? Let's listen. Braille is based upon a grid of dots small enough to fit under the tip of your finger. These dots are numbered 1 through 6, and when raised in different combinations, represent different letters, numbers, and punctuation marks. Each Braille character, or cell, can be described by saying which of the dots are raised in that cell. For instance, this is a 1 cell, this is a 2 5 cell, this is a 3 4 6 cell, and this is a one, two, three, four, five, six cell, otherwise known as a full cell. So Braille is six dots. That's it, two rows of three. The top four are raised in letters A through J. Letters K through T, the next ten letters, the same top four are raised in that sequence, except you know it's K through T, not A through J, because the lower left dot is raised. 
and T through Z, both lower dots are raised. It's a, it's that simple. And how do you do numbers? They have a box beforehand to signal that you're about to do a number, and it's the same sequence as A through J. It's ingenious. And it's so ingenious, and it works so well, that if you're Stevie Wonder or you're Ray Charles, you can live and su- succeed in this life because of Braille, because of the information on the tip of your finger. This is an interview Dick Cavett had with Ray Charles. The tip of your finger is so powerful that Dick Cavett says to Ray Charles, if I could wave a wand and you could see again, would you want to? Ray Charles says, nah, I'm okay. I've been told that some blind people who could have their sight restored have refused because they have spent most of a lifetime adjusting to it mm-hmm. and uh, that it would just completely disorient them to have it restored suddenly yeah. they'd have to learn all new habits and they have actually uh, can, can you sympathize with that if I could wave a wand yeah. and say you will see w- would you accept uh, that I probably uh, w- well let's put it this way uh, if you were if you were to say to me look I can wave a wand and, and you can see you can see right now mm-hmm. um, and, and it's got to be a forever thing. I, I might turn it down. Turn it down. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. But actually, uh, I, I'm not all that hung up about seeing things because I do everything I want to do. I go everywhere I want to go. And, 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 and with some of the news I hear about today, you know, I mean, there's some things I just absolutely don't want to see, man. I really. I, and I feel sorry for you guys who have to put up with it, you know. <laughs> You said your kids. What else would be on that list of uh, things you'd really can you like? Imagine he's feeling sorry for us because we can see. That's how powerful the tip of your finger can be when you can read Braille as a blind man. You can change the music world like Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles did because of that power. What about in sports? My two favorite baseball pitchers of all time, Bob Gibson and Sandy Koufax, could use the tip of that finger and subtly how you put pressure on the seam of the baseball, that red stitching, two seams, touch two seams. The ball doesn't just go fast as in a fastball, but if you pressurize it a certain way, it could either slide and go down better known as a slider that Bob Gibson threw. Or in the case of Sandy Koufax, you put pressure with that tip of your finger and you can defy gravity and it goes up, which is impossible. You can't go against gravity. Listen to this priceless interview with Hank Aaron when he's asked by the interviewer, who's the toughest pitcher you ever faced? He says, Sandy Koufax, because he can make that ball rise. The interviewer says, well, you know, that's impossible. Scientists say, that's impossible. Henry Aaron says, scientists don't play baseball. They don't see what I'm seeing. Koufax, he threw a fastball, and that ball would start here, and by the time you swing it, it would hop a little bit up here. Scientists say, can't happen. The ball can't rise. I don't know. I don't think they ever played baseball. <laughs> I, I don't think they did. It may not sound logical, but it rises. And I, I, I don't want to get into an argument with scientists, but I, I have to say that in some cases they make a mistake. 
That's the science teacher I want to go to, Professor Henry Aaron. But if you put that pressure on the two-seam fastball in a different way, spread your fingers a little bit when you put the pressure on that index finger, the opposite occurs. The fastball drops, called a slider. Listen to Bob Gibson in 1968, the MVP of Major League Baseball, when there was no AL versus NL two MVPs. No, it was for both leagues. He won it. That same year in the World Series, 17 batters in a row. He struck out. Still a record. His ERA was like one or less than one. Because of one pitch, the sinker, the slider. Listen to him describe how you do it. And we, we found a baseball for you, Bob, and, and we were talking about the slider that you were showing the grip with Luke Weaver. And for fans that are watching, how did you grip it? How did you learn the slider? I, I grip my slider the same way I would a, a two-seam fastball. Only you, you put your fingers a little closer together rather than spread. A little closer together, and you put a lot of pressure on that inside finger there. And and I, what I did, I, I, it was kind of like if you try to turn a doorknob and open a doorknob. You hear him? Pressure with that light touch on the index finger. And I, it was like that. And, and then when you wanted a bigger one, you would do it kind of, but then you'd break your wrist, mm-hmm. and you wear that 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 kind of thing that looked like a helicopter. And if it didn't mm. go down in a way, they'd hit it like five miles. Yeah, <laughs> that, the, the 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 good slider from a catcher standpoint came with a dime spin. It was tightly, but the quarter spin that was a trouble slider. Ozuna well, pops it up on the infield. Almost always hit hard. But it's okay it is, as long as you left it down. If you had it down, you could get away with that. And a lot of times it would act pretty much as a changeup. But if you got that up in the air there, you know, up high, they hardly ever missed it. Hardly ever missed it. We had a shot of, of you and Luke Weaver in the dugout before you guys were introduced. You appreciate it when a young guy says, all right, how'd you do it? I saw the video. Tell me something. What am I doing? And what were you doing there? I, I was showing him how you hang it, and they hit it real far. <laughs> don't, don't do this. But the secret is you get good enough at it. As a urologist feeling a prostate, you get good at it, that you can determine that that prostate feels on the digital rectal exam. Uh-oh, this feels hard. I don't care what the, the blood test says. You got cancer. You got to have a biopsy. That's sophistication. Well, same thing. Bob Gibson, that power in his finger, gets so good that his catcher, Tim McCarver, says, one thing I learned as a catcher, when that communication of the tip of his finger with his brain and his body, he's in a zone. I'm not telling him what to pitch. He's telling me what he needs to pitch. That's some sage advice from one of the best catchers ever who caught for one of the best pitchers of all time. The biggest thing that we learned together was to to call pitches to Bob's rhythm. You didn't you the, the one thing that catchers learn, you don't really count in in 
handling a pitcher. The pitcher actually handles you, not the other way around. And Bob said, look, the first thing you think about, put it down. Fastball, he had a curveball to left-handers that he'd throw ever so yeah, seldomly. Once in a while. Once in a while. But the slider, primarily one and three. Sage advice. Coming up next, we're going to connect the dots of sports, art and music, and my world of medicine and surgery. The great Dr. Ariel Morazadeh, a urologist, is going to teach us about that information, the tip of the doctor's finger to be able to tell you, don't worry about it, you're fine, or you better go get a biopsy of your prostate. The power in the tip of your finger. Coming up next on the Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Mason in Ireland back Monday at 1 on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Soon to be a major motion picture. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Without a good hip, you ain't hopping, that's for sure. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. The great Hall and Oates, right? You're out of touch. You better not be. You better have a good touch. I'm so excited to talk to my guest, the great Ariel Morazadeh. Ariel, make sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Is it Mirazadeh? You, you are. You nailed it. Yeah. Okay, Ariel cool. Mirazadeh. That's correct. I love it. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to teach the Weekend Warriors. Unfortunately, this is a conversation just for the men out there, but we got a lot of them. We have a lot of, a lot of women who are listening on behalf of the men in their life. So what you're going to be teaching us is very important. How do you like the connection so far between baseball pitching and reading braille with what you're doing as your digital rectal exam i love it and i'm really excited to be on with you this morning and uh, with all the weekend warriors and their significant others and people that care about them um i think it it really is so important to really talk about the subtleties of a digital rectal exam and from what i've been hearing from a lot of my patients um it sounds like a lot of primary care providers are kind of shying away from doing the dre or the digital rectal exam And I think it really adds a significant amount of data uh, to the patient's overall clinical picture and being able to diagnose and eventually treat prostate cancer. So I want to begin with a stupid question, if you don't mind, because I'm just an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not what you do. (laughs) So I, I want to begin with, and just to kind of teach them. So anatomy wise, I get it that you now take as the doctor, the index finger, and by feeling you know, KY jelly, and now you're in the rectum and you're feeling the the prostate, like a, like a plum, if you will, that's touching the rectum, if you will, so you can feel it. Take me through how much of the plum are you feeling? You can only feel half of it, right? The back half. You're not feel, or, or are you able to infer what the rest of it? For example, could you be missing a cancer that's in the front of the plum, which you're not able to feel versus the back? Yeah. So that's a great question. So briefly kind of reviewing the anatomy of the prostate. So the prostate sits just in front of the rectum. And the reason why we're able to feel it by placing a finger inside the rectum is its position. The backside of the prostate uh, faces the front of the rectum. So 
by performing a digital rectal exam, you're able to feel the back half or the, the top side, essentially, of the prostate. And that's where the majority of prostate cancer appears, in that peripheral zone, hmm. as opposed to enlargement of the prostate, which occurs in the center or the transitional zone. That's more BPH, which ends up affecting urinary symptoms. And BPH stands for benign prostatic hyperplasia. So in the detection of prostate cancer, it occurs on the periphery or the outside of the gland, and you're able to, by assessing the back and top side of the plum, so to speak, you're able to feel for symmetry, you're feeling for any hard nodules, you're feeling if it's smooth, if there's any areas of tenderness or pain. Mm. So with the digital rectal exam, you're able to feel the contours of the prostate and really be able to detect if there's any areas of irregularity or asymmetry. So, Ariel, because I'm so old, and thankfully you are so young, so there's lots of hope for the future for the world because I'm old and you're young, I started uh, 33 years ago in practice. And when a patient came to the operating room for me in orthopedics and was difficult to intubate, what a deal this was. They had to get fiber optic this, and it was a complete, it was a mess. Very difficult if they could not see the vocal cords to be able to pass the tube, and it really became a nightmare. Now, it's unbelievable in 2022. How elegant to use this very simple tool where they lift up the back of the tongue and they have a camera. They can now see the vocal cords so clearly in a routine intubate, you never have those issues anymore. Mm-hmm. So my question mm-hmm. is, since could there be a world, and I have six patents, I've invented a lot of tools that are used in millions of cases all over the world, so I'm not just coming up with a crazy idea. I actually have invented a lot of stuff. Can you make a smart rubber glove for a urologist for you, Ariel, where, yes, the glove is giving you the top or the back half of the plum, but that on the pad itself of your finger, on the glove, that as you do your excursion of only the top and the back half, that the day will come that this smart glove could give information to some type of computer to build in three dimensions the entirety of the plum. Is that possible or am I crazy? Uh that's an interesting question. Um, my brother actually happens to be an interventional radiologist, so we end up cross-talking and discussing a lot of imaging and surgical uh, modality crossovers. Um, you know, they have probes which we use to perform prostate biopsies. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the overlay of a glove with the ability to obtain real-time imaging may not necessarily be necessary, uh, because we have the ability to have the tactile sensation and then go right in with the uh, ultrasound probe. And now we're using this modality called Euronav, which is in, we, we get the prostate MRI whenever there's an elevation in the PSA, mm-hmm. and then we can overlay it in real time with the ultrasound mm-hmm. and be able to take targeted biopsies of any suspicious lesions or areas of the prostate that are detected on the MRI mm-hmm. and superimpose that in real time with an ultrasound. So, but, but, but Ariel, and this is great. I mean, you're terrific. I can't thank you enough. I mean, people are really appreciating your skill set because of the deep thinking that you have, which is fabulous. Because 
in essence, you can do, Dr. Clapper, all the cockamamie MRIs and ultrasonic probes, and we love that your brother is an interventional radiologist, but in the end, he ain't Ariel. And Ariel has a fingertip that can be so sensitive that all the machinery in the world, and, and again, you're young at this, go, go feel 5,000 more prostates and then have your sense confirmed by what you end up finding in surgery of that very prostate you felt with the digital rectal exam. This information will build like layers of, uh, of lasagna in your head will build so that you will get to the point where you'll say, I don't care what the PSA is, Dr. Clapper. You got cancer. You have to take it out, right? I mean, that digital pad on your finger is really where it's all at, all at right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, prior to the advent of the PSA screening test, um, you know, before it got FDA approval uh, in, I believe it was 1994, prior to this, every urologist and even every primary care doctor was really only detecting prostate cancer with the subtleties of a digital rectal exam. Hmm. So it wasn't until after 1994 where, you know, you got an elevation in the PSA that told you, oh, maybe you should have a biopsy. Because prior to this, it would be if you had an abnormal digital rectal exam, you went straight for a biopsy. And if the biopsy came back Mm. that, you know, determined there was cancer present, you either had surgery or radiation. So Mm. I think... Definitely. I mean, you can have prostate cancer in the setting of a normal PSA and you can have prostate cancer in the setting of a normal digital rectal exam. So they're not mutually exclusive in their diagnosis, but it definitely, I think, omission of the digital rectal exam would potentially be doing a disservice to the patient. And I see a lot of patients in my practice today that they said, oh, yeah, I switched primary care providers that my new PCP, my new mm. primary care provider doesn't do a digital rectal exam. They just base it off of the PSA, mm. which I totally understand. And I have so much respect and admiration for my primary care colleagues because they're so inundated with so many patients and having to follow up on so many different things that I totally understand if they don't have the time or the, yeah, but that's, uh, don't give them, don't give them an easy way out. That's terrible. God bless you for being a politician, but you don't have to be that way. <laughs> that's their biggest importance. Doing a colonoscopy saves people's lives, and actually mm-hmm. feeling their prostate saves a man's life. If someone like a primary care physician takes the time to do it, but I, I want to ask you this because this is what's so fun for me now that sure. I'm so more advanced because I'm older. That's what I mean by advanced, advanced age. It doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. smarter, but the smartness comes from experience, and I don't care what it is that you do for a living. So. I want to take advantage of you being on the air with us right now to take us through what you were taught by your gray-haired teachers of those subtleties when you listen to Bob Gibson describe the digital exam, if you will, and then him trying to teach this to a young pitcher. Just listen. I'm curious, and I want to hear what some of your teachers taught you. Sure. We, we found a baseball for you, Bob, and, and we were talking about the slider that you were showing the grip with Luke Weaver. And for fans that are watching, how did you grip it? How did you learn the slider? I, I grip my slider the same way I would a, a two-seam fastball, only you, you put your fingers a little closer together rather than spread. A little closer together, and you put a lot of pressure on that inside finger there. 
and and I what I did I, I it was kind of like if you try to turn a doorknob and open a doorknob right so now he sees this young pitcher what do you tell them what do you tell the young student but it's okay it is, as long as you left it down if you had it down you could get away with that and a lot of times it would act pretty much as a changeup. But if you got that up in the air there, you know, up high, they hardly ever missed it. Hardly ever missed it. We had a shot of, of you and Luke Weaver in the dugout before you guys were introduced. You appreciate it when a young guy says, all right, how'd you do it? I saw the video. Tell me something. What am I doing? And what were you doing there? I, I was showing him how you hang it, and they hit it real far. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do this. So, Ariel, what, take us through what a senior urologist who's done 10,000 exams, taught you about what to feel. Take us through that. Yeah, so, um, you know, from the get-go, patient positioning is very important. I always real quick get into the position just to demonstrate to the patient how I want them to stand, bend their knees, lean forward. I demonstrate, you know, my humility in some ways and say, look, we're in this together. I'm going to show you what compromising position you're going to have to be in and you know, I kind of just make the situation more light for them because obviously no guy necessarily wants to have uh, a urologist's finger up their rectum. So mm-hmm. positioning is essential. Then the next step, once I, I'm able to insert my finger into the rectum and I'm feeling the prostate, I go directly anterior, meaning all the way to the front part of the prostate towards what's called the apex. Mm-hmm. And I first feel the apex. I'm feeling for any irregularities because you can have prostate cancer um, in the apex of the prostate. Mm. So I feel the apex, which is towards the top, and then I sweep my finger to the right, and mm. as I'm feeling the right lateral edge of the prostate capsule, I'm feeling for also any subtle irregularities. Mm. And this, the surface of the prostate should be smooth, like the surface of a plum. Mm. There shouldn't be any bumps or lumps that you're feeling. Mm. So as I'm sweeping my finger to the right side, I'm feeling for that symmetry of the right lateral lobe. I'm feeling for any irregularities. Mm. any areas of tenderness, and then I do the same sweep on the left side. Mm. You know, cancer can be very subtle. It could be the size of a lentil. Mm. It could be the size of a chickpea. And you're just feeling for that subtle Mm. change in the surface contour of the prostate. And then I come to the back or the uh, more proximal aspect, meaning closer to the patient's rectum, and I'm feeling the backside of the prostate as well, seeing for any, feeling for any areas of irregularity, um, tenderness, nodularity, asymmetry. Mm. Both halves of the prostate should be approximately the same size. And I also factor in the size of the prostate, you know, because once we obtain a PSA, you can take the PSA and divide it out by the size of the prostate in, measured in grams. Mm. And that gives you a PSA density. So if someone has a borderline normal slash high PSA, if they have a really large gland, like a 120 gram prostate, mm-hmm. and you divide that out and their density is a low number, you're not necessarily worried about cancer being present because you can, once you obtain an MRI also, you can chalk up the fact that the patient has an elevated PSA to the fact that they have a really large prostate. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, vice versa is also true. If they have an elevated PSA, but their prostate is really small, their PSA density per gram of prostate is going to be really high. So that increases my index of suspicion for cancer. Got it. 
That's amazing. Listen, I want to take advantage of you being with us to talk about the other things that you see as a urologist, erectile dysfunction and other features. So can you stay on the line? Yeah, absolutely. All right, I want to pay some bills. We'll come in right back with the great Dr. Ariel Morazadeh from Cedars-Sinai, urologist. So cool to learn all about the power of that tip of his finger feeling for cancer. Just awesome. Coming up next, we'll continue with him. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Roberto Claperio, a fish tacologist. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I know the ins and outs of a fish taco. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That song from Diana Ross, Ariel, combines both the digital rectal exam with erectile dysfunction. (laughs) What a combination we got here. We're talking to the great Dr. Ariel Morazadeh, a urologist at Cedars-Sinai. I'm very proud to be at Cedars for my career, 33 years and counting, because of the people that populate that building. And you, young man, are one of them. So it's an honor to have you on the show today and to teach people with your humility and your compassion, which you can just feel through the radio waves. So good on you. Good job. Teach us a little bit about when a man turns 50, the wheels start coming off the wagon, literally. So teach us what it is and what are the options and why does it happen? What are your thoughts about erectile dysfunction? Yeah, so actually the wheels start coming off a little earlier than 50, um, at least in patients I see in my practice and the urologic literature, I always tell patients, and I see patients from all ages coming in with ED. I see guys as young as in their 20s, all the way up to 90 plus. Um, and God bless those guys' hearts who are still trying to, you know, stay in the game at that age. So, uh, <laughs> Can I tell you something as an orthopedic surgeon? Sure. They're in my room. They, they're limping. They got a bad hip. I'll say that it could be 90. I'll look at them and I'll go, listen, you're going to tell me when you're ready for surgery. There's no, no one needs an emergency hip operation. You're going to mm-hmm. tell me when you need it. And I'll tell them it's, you know, when you're limping, you roll over in bed uh, three, three to four times, your body weight goes through your hip, tying your shoes, clipping your toenails. And then I'll say, and certainly you're going to know when having sex is painful. I say it to 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds. Trust me, mm-hmm. that is the reason they say, I'm ready, Dr. Clapper. It's the <laughs> unspoken truth is they're 70 and they still want to have sex and their hip hurts so much that they can't. So you're totally right. You could be 90. Gig is into, hey, you want to have a pill for this or well, however you want to treat it, they're still thinking about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, so I, I, you know, I tell my guys, you know, 40% of men by age 40 and 50% of men by age 50 will have some degree of erectile dysfunction. Mm. And erectile dysfunction comes in a lot, a lot of different um, flavors, so to speak. It could be a difficulty attaining the erection. It could be a difficulty maintaining the erection. It could be less rigidity than before. It can be, you know, early spontaneous loss of the erection. So all those really are erectile dysfunction. And mm. I tell my guys, so about 50% of men by age 50 have ED, and it goes up by about 10%. The prevalence goes up by 10% every decade. Mm. So 
the the causes of ED are numerous. You know, in younger guys, a lot of times it's it's psychological or what's called psychogenic erectile dysfunction, where you know they might have drinking too much. They you know, unfortunately, I hate to say this, sometimes illicit drugs like cocaine use can cause ED, um, or they're really stressed out or nervous or anxious. All those things can create one bad episode in their mind and then subsequent to that every time they try and have a sexual encounter they're worried or you know in the back of their mind they're thinking oh my god am i going to get an erection am i going to keep it so in the younger population a lot of times i talk to them about stress management meditation yoga relaxation Hmm. sometimes i have to give them uh you know some benzos even though i like to avoid any kind of drugs um so that's kind of the earlier younger uh population that I see with ED. And then going into later years, you know, um, post-prostatectomy patients, they get a, you know, the, the loss of nocturnal tumescence, meaning the overnight erections, which results in um, loss of elasticity of the penis and fibrosis. And obviously, after they have prostate surgery, the nerves of the prostate mm. invariably get injured, which causes erectile dysfunction. Mm. And then in other patients like diabetics, they have neuropathy in their hands and their feet. They also get nerve injury to the penis nerves that enable erections. Mm-hmm. So um, in addition to the nerve injury issue that they have, also arterial insufficiency, meaning poor blood flow to the mm-hmm. penis itself. And then lastly, one of the other more common flavors of erectile dysfunction is venous leak. Mm-hmm. So in order to attain and maintain an erection, you need to have sufficient pressure, meaning arterial inflow, which then pushes against the veins and blocks the veins from draining the penis. Mm. So you need good arterial inflow and you need the veins to coapt or slam shut in order to keep the blood, that pressurized blood in the penis to maintain the rigidity. Hmm. Whenever, uh, in some patients, uh, as patients get older, those veins become a little leaky. So whenever you get arterial inflow, you get just as much venous leak, so then you're not able to maintain the rigidity of the erection. So, so Ariel, before you go on, because yeah. I don't have that much time, the man at 3M who invented the post-it note was, like, fired practically because it was a mistake. You know, he didn't make the good enough adhesive until they realized, you know what, we maybe we don't want the adhesive to stick so good, we want it to stick not so good and we can use it, so they promoted him. The person at Sony who invented the Walkman also made a mistake because he didn't make the exact thing that they want, and they said it's kind of a half-baked thing. Thank you, it became the Sony Walkman. Teach us uh, briefly, how the hell did they come up with this pill for this exact problem? Yes, so... uh, Viagra, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, Viagra also goes by the name of Sildenafil. it's a class of medication called phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. Um, this was actually uh, created um, in part by one of my mentors who actually did my fellowship with, Dr. Jacob Rafer, mm. over at UCLA, um, and Lou Ignaro, who's a PhD, um, who actually won the Nobel Prize for this. Um, they ended up creating sildenafil specifically for this condition called pulmonary hypertension, meaning elevation in the pressure of the vessels that go to the lungs. Mm -hmm. And they saw as a byproduct or a side effect of this medication that patients who had erectile dysfunction started getting erections again. Hmm. So 
then they started marketing this. And I mean, obviously before marketing it, they started researching this for erectile dysfunction. They found that it actually works quite well. Um, the, can you imagine? Just, you need to make a movie about this, Ariel. You're in Hollywood. Like the first guy, Frank, how are your lungs doing? Oh, I'm breathing better. And by the way, Doc, this pill is fantastic. Like, really? Why? I mean, I just need to go back in time to when, yeah. like, uh, you know what? There's actually a side effect to my lung medication, Dr. Raffer or Rafer or whatever his name is. And uh, look what's happening here. I mean, they must have said, come on, you know, we're not really bad. Then the second one came in and they go, you know what? Something's going on here, right? It's like there's a great comedy routine of Mel Brooks with Carl Reiner where he pretends to be a 2,000-year-old man. And Carl Reiner is the straight man. Mel Brooks is the the funny man. And Carl Reiner is interviewing a 2,000-year-old man. He says, so do you remember the first time women were appeared in the cave? And uh, Mel Brooks, pretending to be the 2,000-year-old man, says, yes, I remember exactly the day when we discovered women. And Carl Reiner says, really? Well, what was that like? He says, I was in the cave with Murray. Murray got up one day. He walks outside of the cave. He comes back in. He goes, hey, there's ladies here. Like, this is like what must have happened. It's like, oh, my God. How do you discover this? Oh, my God. My lungs are better. But, wow, I got to go back in time. You got to do some research and help me out with that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you even look at something like Propecia, which is finasteride, it was initially initially thought to potentially protect against prostate cancer. That's why they were developing this drug. And then they realized, oh, it actually shrinks the prostate. We can use it to treat uh, symptoms of enlarged prostate, which finasteride is called Proscar for the prostate. But then they realized by giving it to guys, their hair started growing. And so they said, oh, we could use finasteride in a much lower dose instead of five milligrams for the prostate, one milligram, and you can get hair regrowth, and boom, let's market this as Propecia. So. That's awesome. Well, you need to. You are the bright light for Cedar sinai You are the young generation, and we need you, Ariel, to continue to be deep thinking and to keep that compassion of yours. And I'm just so proud. Listen, your mom and dad are proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud to know you and to work alongside you. And I want to thank you so much for making time to be with us this morning. The phone will ring off the hook. They know how to get a hold of you by going to the Cedars website. And thanks so much for making time this morning to be with us, Ariel. Of course. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Dr. Klepper. And I know my parents are actually listening in, so Uh, I hope they got a kick out of hearing me on the radio. I'm very proud of them, like as if I was your, your parent as well. So God bless you and have a great day today. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Take All right, care. You too, young man. The great Ariel Moraes today, a urologist at Cedars. I would trust my life to a guy like that. Deep think you can tell how smart he is and how lovely he is at the same time. All right, Warriors. The number is 877-710-ESPN. I got to tell you a story, though, of the very first time as an orthopedic resident, light touch came into my life. And I'll give you a hint. It involved, well, it was in the newborn nursery. I'll just say that. Me going in there to examine a newborn. I'll explain. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper 
and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. You're not going to leave me alone, are you? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. The Grand Poobah, the Big Kahuna. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. The great Stevie Wonder, writing a song, singing a song, describing visually what his newborn daughter is like. He can do that because of today's topic, the power of light touch that a blind man or woman can read, can see the life around them with Braille. There is so much elegance and power in that light touch. And that newborn nursery that Wilbert is playing, that Stevie Wonder is singing about, brings me to my next story of light touch in the life of Dr. Clapper. It's 1984, so this is almost 40 years ago that I'm telling you this story. I'm a brand new orthopedic resident at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, which is next door to New York Hospital, this giant institution. And that's where they deliver lots and lots of babies in New York. Well, when you go on the pediatric orthopedic rotation, which I did, there are two brand new residents, junior residents they're called, and one chief resident. So there's three of us. And we do all kinds of pediatric orthopedic surgery. Kids with scoliosis, kids with all kinds of deformities in their hip, their club foot. This is what you, this is when you learn all about how cerebral palsy and all kinds of other things that affect the, the skeleton and the surgeries that we can do. And I was blessed. The man who was in charge, his name was Leon Root. He has long since passed away, but he was one of the sweetest, nicest men. And he was the head of pediatric orthopedics at the time at special surgery. So the rotation involves the following. It's like the military or, or any profession. You're brand new. You need your more senior person or resident to teach you who has an attending teaching them. And this is how the world becomes a better place. If it wasn't for Mark Willard and Brian Long and Dave Denholm or A. Martinez and Max Kellerman, I, I, I didn't go to school for being on the radio. These are the people that taught me when I got here. And I'm forever grateful um, to them. But in my life as a surgeon, here I am, I'm on the pediatric orthopedic rotation. They say, Clapper, today we're going to New York Hospital. What are we doing? We're going to the newborn nursery. I said, okay, what are we doing there? We're going to examine all the babies that were born in the last two days that are in the newborn nursery to make sure they don't have a subtle finding of a dislocated hip. It's very common. If you are the first born child in a family, there's a higher risk of having a ball and socket joint that doesn't fit properly, a dysplasia or a hip dislocation. If you are born breech, meaning your head doesn't come out first, but your foot comes out first when you're being born, a breech delivery, that also is a, uh, a higher risk of having it. So there's all kinds of things that put you at risk for having a dislocated hip. And if you can detect that the ball is not in the socket in the newborn and put them in a brace, 
you can avoid surgery and they can have a normal hip for the rest of their life. But if the hip is staying, the femoral head, the ball of the ball and socket joint remains not touching the socket, it already starts to make it a misshapen hip. Okay? So I'm going with my colleagues, my the, the other junior resident, the senior resident, we are walking with our white coats over to New York Hospital. And we are greeted by the very large head nurse of pediatrics. This is her newborn nursery, and these are her rules, and this is her world, and you better do exactly what she says, okay? Which is great. Uh, my mom was a nurse. I have all the respect in the world for the nurse. What I don't realize is I'm about to be in in baseball, basketball. There's rookie treatment. If you're a rookie playing for the Lakers, you will have to schlep the luggage out of the bus for the senior basketball, for LeBron James and those guys. And that's what LeBron had to do. When you're a rookie, they do things, rookie treatment, they call it. You could say it's hazing, but it's not really. It's just you're being, you got to get through it. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if they do it in law firms or in accounting firms, but certainly in orthopedic surgery, this was rookie treat. What's the rookie treatment? That the head nurse and the senior resident knows that these two schmendricks, me and the other guy, are brand new at this and we have no idea what, what awaits us. Because the way you do it, light touch, is the baby's on its back, girl or boy, you take the diaper down so that with your thumb you can feel the front of the hip joint and with your other fingers you can feel the side of the hip and you gently feel if the ball is gliding in the socket properly. Because if you hear a click or a pop, then you know the ball is not where it's supposed to be. And you can feel that. And that kid has a dislocated hip. It's very rare, but it happens. And you really do them a big service by detecting it right away. Here's the, the rookie treatment. They send you always, the first time, to the little girl. So the head nurse goes, okay, go see that patient, that little baby first, and they go to the next one. So you take the diaper down. It's a little girl. You feel, you know, it's no big deal. Okay. Then she says, now go feel that one, and it's a little boy. So what do I know? You take the diaper down so you can put your thumbs there. It's a little boy with a penis. Soon as you squeeze to gently, light touch, to feel the hip, the baby, it's like a reflex. You squeeze to feel both ears. Guess what happens? He pees right in your eye. So the head nurse is there in the, in the doorway with her arms crossed, waiting <laughs> for that moment, which happens every single time, for yours truly, Dr. Clapper, to go, okay, now I'll feel the little boy. Take the diaper down. And all of a sudden you hear go, hey, he just peed in my eye. Happens every single time. So that's a story about light touch in the world of orthopedic surgery in my life. Listen, let's talk about food. My mouth is warding. I can't even speak. But you and I have a treasure here in Los Angeles because light touch, braille, those bumps that allow you to read the world if you're blind, in the world of food is what ravioli is, flat pasta with a bump with the greatest marinara sauce, the greatest bread and butter. Where is it in L.A.? Cafe Angelino. The great Chuck Prochette and Colin Black got me the ravioli from Cafe Angelino yesterday. And I thank them from the bottom of my stomach and heart because 
Weekend Warriors, that's the place you got to go to. The spinach, ricotta cheese, ravioli, and that red sauce, you don't need to fly to Italy. We have a lot. I think I'm going to have to pass on all the Weekend Warriors. You'll have to call next week. I'll take the calls next week because I do want to talk about the topic for next week, which I'm so excited about. John Collier from Ethicon, the biggest suture company in the world. They make the stitches that I use in all the many surgeries that I do to your shoulder, your hip, your knee, all the orthopedic surgery that I do and we all do. It's the biggest suture company in the world. John Collier is an engineer expert in something I want to talk about, and I bet you you didn't know this. Some of the stitches that I use, I want to never be absorbed by your body to last forever for certain things I'm repairing. Other stitches that I use in doing your surgery, I want it to absorb. Believe it or not, there's a whole world science behind absorbable versus non-absorbable sutures. And John Collier's an expert, and we're going to talk about it. So I'm already thinking, what can I talk about in art and music and in sports about absorbing versus not the timing because when you say it's an absorbable stitch is it melting away at six weeks at eight weeks at 12 weeks that's why there's engineers trying to figure out when's the right time for it to disappear so there's a group in music from the 90s called mazzy star they're from los angeles and they wrote a song called fade into you Hope Sandoval wrote this song and sings it. And I can't stop thinking about this song. So the story behind Mazzy Star and Fade Into You. And what about in the world of sports? Absorbable versus non That timing issue. Well, when Sandy Koufax said, I can't do it anymore. My elbow is too arthritic. The chutzpah of the journalist at the press conference asked him a question. Why, Sandy? 11 years. Why? Why are you retiring at 31 years old? And when you hear Sandy Koufax's answer, for me and my Meshuggah ahead of mine, is absorbable versus non-absorbable stitches. When is the right time to stop? Sandy Koufax in the most elegant words, can give John Collier, the engineers, a clue of when the right time is. And that's what will be next week. Until then, I'll see you on the radio, and I leave you with Volari.